Hey, uh, scripture for us today, I uh, will just begin with uh, this one from Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and it penetrates even into the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So the reason I have this uh, big bag up here this morning is not because the sermon's going to be a couple hours, but uh, rather because it's my sword collection. It's my sword collection. I'm going to ask to see your swords here in a minute because I asked you to bring them today. But uh, I'm going to start with this one. This was my mom's sword. This is uh, a living Bible, and uh, it is a sword. That's what the Word of God calls itself, a sword. And she was given this Bible on January 19 of 1972 by a bunch of gals, I think, from uh, one of her small groups. So that's one sword. Tried to find my dad's sword today. I couldn't find it. It's on my bookshelf somewhere, but as usual, I'm disorganized, so I didn't get there. But it's, it's, it, his sword is a real small Bible with very thin pages and very small print. And that was the sword I remember him carrying and him preaching from. And then we had our family sword, which was the Bible that we would read from at devotions at our table on Sundays and uh, during the week. Uh, here's a couple more of my swords. This one is a Gideon Testament given to me on July 22 of 1974. I would have been 11 years old, and we were at a Gideon convention in Washington, D.C., an international Gideon convention. I was given this little Gideon New Testament. Here is my sword from graduation from middle school at New Era Christian School on June 9 of 1977 with this word, may God's word continue to direct you, comfort you, and bless you for the rest of your life. And through 60 years, it have done that. Ah, here's one. This has been my favorite. It's my NIV study Bible, and uh, I got this in college. I, I actually got it from a gal who is long gone, but the word of the Lord remains steadfast forever, right? Doesn't the Bible say that? All right, so I still got the Bible, and uh, it is, it, I love it because it's got a lot of notes at the bottom of it, of each page. Plus, this Bible um, was at a time when I was really growing in my faith under a pastor, Lou Vandermeer, at Sunshine Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And so I was scribbling notes in the columns of my Bible all the time. So I got a lot of notes from listening to Pastor Lou from over the years. And this is my sword, the New Testament sword, in Greek. Can I still read it anymore? No, but I could at one point. Here's my Hebrew sword. Uh, yeah, again, uh, I can't read it anymore. But I could in seminary, and I had to pass comprehensive exam. And once I passed the comprehensive exam, it just fell out. Anyway, but it was good while it, while it happened. Those are my, oh, one more sword. It's the one I usually use when I'm preaching. This is my archaeological study Bible. It was given me by a couple from this church, and I love this one because it links archaeological discoveries to various texts, so you can see how what happened happened in history at certain places. And Michelle and I have loved going on expeditions where we, where we uh, go to biblical, the biblical lands, and uh, we're actually hoping to do one in Egypt next May. We'll see, right? So, but this, uh, this has been an important Bible in my life as well. Those are my swords. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ at Community Church, Roselawn, Indiana. Draw your swords. I want to see them. I want to see them. There they are. 
the sword of the Lord. Now, would you please stand with that sword still drawn? Please stand, sword still drawn, and repeat after me. This is my Bible, God's holy word. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught from the word of God. My mind is alert. My heart is receptive. And I will never be the same. You may be seated. My friend, when you carry this book, you are armed with the sword of the Lord. It is not a concealed carry. It does not require a permit. And should you not have a sword yet, your own personal sword, you are invited to receive one after uh, the message this morning, after the service this morning, the free Bible ministry will have swords available in the lobby. And uh, thankful to have one of my friends down here today, Richard, from my church in Fremont, who went with your Bible ministry to uh, to Big Show yesterday and today to hand out the word. And uh, we'll be handing out more Bibles this morning if you don't have your own sword yet. This, my friend, is the sole and sufficient spiritual authority for the believer in Jesus Christ. And this is what you look like when you are packing the sword of the Lord. You really, because, because this is the most powerful book in the world. And when you have it at your side, when you're going places where the word of God, and when you're sitting down and reading the word of God, you have the sole and sufficient authority for the believer in Jesus Christ. Indeed, this is our sole insufficient spiritual authority. Now, a little, little history about this, how this teaching came to be. It's in the Word of God, but the church strayed from that for a time. But in 1517, a man named Martin Luther nailed 95 theses or concerns against the Roman Catholic Church on the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. This launched the Protestant Reformation, a new wing of the Christian church, as it returned the church to the Holy Word of God as the sole and sufficient authority for the believer. Here were the five core beliefs of the Reformed, uh, the reformed Movement. And you saw some of that, you heard some of that in our songs this morning, and I think probably most of this is familiar to you over time, but five core beliefs, salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, by the blood of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and the Bible is the sole and sufficient, infallible spiritual authority for the believer. And if you believe that, friends, if you believe those five points, you are a product of the Protestant Reformation, and, and, and these teachings continue to be at the core of who we are. Now today we're going to consider the core value of the Reformation, that the Bible is the sole and sufficient uh, spiritual authority, and this is not dull history. Because many of us today operate with multiple sources of spiritual authority in our life rather than the one sole source of spiritual authority, the Bible, the Word of God. How can that be, you say? I'm, I'm a good Christian. Well, for many, it's my Bible and my feelings as I discern things spiritually. Or it's my Bible and my logic. 
or it's my Bible and what the church says, or it's my Bible and what Senate decrees, or it's my Bible and what my pastor says. But friend, it's the Bible alone that is the sole and sufficient source of spiritual authority for the Christian. Now, I've been saying that over and over again. Let's, let's hear it from the Bible itself, please. Would you take out your Bible again? And if you didn't bring a sword this morning, don't yet have a sword. There's swords for you there on the seats. We're going to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you're new to the Bible, there's an index in the front of your Bible, and you can find where that 2 Timothy book is located by page number, okay? If you've been around the Christian church for a while, you kind of have an idea. 2 Timothy is, let's see, it's in the New Testament, and it's sort of kind of in the middle or slightly toward the end of the New Testament. Uh, but get there however you will, whether you look in the index or where you can kind of find it. So a little uh, note on pastors is uh, sometimes we get nervous when we're up front. So when I'm in a little book in the Bible, I put a paper clip in it when I'm preaching up front. So I don't sit, sit here for three minutes trying to find the passage, all right? So I got a paper clip on 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, have you found 2 Timothy chapter 3? If you have, raise your hands, please. All right, most of you are there. A couple of you are fiddling yet. You're going to get there here in a moment. So we are going to hear from God's word, 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at the 14th verse. Paul is talking to a young pastor named Timothy, and he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from who you learned it. This is a reference to his mom, to his family, probably to his church. And Paul is saying, Timothy, you've been in this rich tradition uh, of learning biblical truths. That is a great thing. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's the reading from God's holy word. You might want to keep your finger in that spot. Jot down a couple notes if you choose. There was a gal in my first charge in McBain, Michigan. And she was being complimentary as my work, at, at, toward my work as her pastor. I was... 29, 30 years old, so I was at first soaking this up, and she said, Pastor, I have to tell you, or excuse me, I have wrong, I have you to tell me what the Bible says. I have you to tell me what the Bible says, which was a version of, I have you, the representative of the church, holy man of God to explain to me what this difficult book is trying to teach me. The Bible is a book too hard for me. I don't read it. And instead, Pastor Joel, I have you. I didn't drink the Kool-Aid. I was young, but I didn't drink the Kool-Aid. She needed the Bible first and foremost. Not first and foremost her pastor, or an individual in her life, she first and foremost needed the holy word of God. 
Now, as I say that this morning, I don't want to diminish the importance of preaching, but I also don't want preaching to be overplayed. She was overplaying preaching. She needs to read the book. She needs to know the book. The book is the sole and sufficient authority for the Christian's life. The book is indeed the word of God. And what you got here this morning behind this is, yes, a person called by God to this work. But I am just a man, and I am a fallible man. She needs the infallible to take her next step in growth. And she might not be the only one here that, this morning that needs that. Unfortunately, I suspect that her condition is true of many of us here this morning. Preacher, you tell me. I got you to tell me what it says. And I'll do my best this morning. I will do my best to stand and deliver. But first and foremost, you need to read the book. It is the sole and sufficient spiritual authority for the believer. It begins here, friends. Not here. Here? Not here. So today I do rise to invoke the Holy Scriptures that this very book is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. First of all, it is God-breathed. This is actually a sailing term. The Greek word describes a, a ship being whose sails are filled with a breeze and being carried along across the seas. The text teaches that all scripture is the product of the Spirit's work. He filled the writer and so carried him along with the words, pro that, that words produced that, that though they bear the mark of the writer's personality, they remain the true and certain words of God himself. Clearly, the Holy Spirit used people to write the word of God. The Spirit didn't erase their natural characteristics of the writers. In fact, God in his providence prepared the writers for the task of writing the scriptures. Each writer had his own distinct style and vocabulary. Read Paul and it will sound one way. Read John, it will sound another. Read the stuff that Moses wrote and that's different yet because their personality comes through. And yet all of it, every word of it, is inspired each book of the Bible grew out of a special set of circumstances. And in his preparation of these men, in his guiding of history, and in his working through the Spirit, God brought the miracle of the Scriptures, the Holy Bible. Warren Wiersbe, a, a Bible teacher, puts it this way. We must not think of inspiration the way the world thinks when it says, well, Shakespeare was certainly an inspired writer. What we mean by biblical inspiration is the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit on the Bible writers, which guaranteed that what they wrote was accurate and trustworthy. Whatever the Bible says about itself, about man, about God, about life, about death, it's true. And in this age where nobody seems to be able to agree anymore on the truth, you have the have the sole sufficient spiritual authority in the word of God it's chaos in culture it's chaos in the world who knows what to believe but you have this you have this and thanks be to God in a time of chaos there is this and this book is a miracle 
Have you ever thought of it that way? It's a library of 66 books. 40 different writers wrote it in over 1,500 years' time. The writers include kings and peasants, philosophers and fishermen, poets and scholars. It was written on three different continents in three different languages. And despite this seeming diversity, it carries a consistent, complete message which unfolds across its pages. The coming of the kingdom of God and salvation through Jesus Christ. If you want to do something fun sometime, go back in the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, and note all the prophecies about Jesus, about a coming Messiah, this guy who's coming. And then go to the New Testament and find the fulfillment to those prophecies. Over 300 prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This book, this miracle book, is read by more people and published in more languages than any other book in the world. It's the powerful miraculous book containing God's word and all of it is God breathed every single word not part or some but all of it and by the way this might be new to you that all of it all of it every word of it is God breathed but it's not new to your enemy Satan knows the power of the word of God and that is why he and his trick bag always is trying to manipulate or trick you over the word of God. Now you see that already in Genesis chapter 3. God, it, Satan says to, to, to Eve, did he really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He's playing tricks with God's word. He's trying to deceive Eve and get her tricked, okay? So he does that with Eve. And then you turn into the New Testament and you watch that the second Adam, Jesus Christ, is about to be seemingly deceived by Satan when Satan begins to use scripture against Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He counters by knowing the scriptures more fully than Satan. So he responds to Satan's attacks on God's word by using God's word rightly. This book, it's all true. And if it's all true, we better know all of it. Not just your favorite parts. Not just your favorite texts. Not just the easy passages. But like the whole thing. And here's why. This is from a devotional that was in our daily bread. Uh, some of you uh, use that sometimes at your dinner tables, I'm sure. And this one was entitled, The Importance of Studying All of the Scripture. It goes like this. Researchers studied eye movement during normal conversation have found that sustaining eye contact with any length of time is difficult, if not impossible. So in fact, those of you kids who do staring contests with your friends or with your mom or dad or with grandpa or grandma, and you're just staring at each other, and the first one to blink loses, okay? Well, even though you are staring, your eyes are constantly wiggling. Did you know that? They're constantly wiggling. And here, here's why. Special cameras reveal that what appears to be a steady gaze at someone is actually a series of rapid scans of their face. Eye movement is essential because the nerves in the eye need a constant change of stimulation if we are to see properly. Studies show that if we look at the same spot continuously, the rest of our visual field will go blank. We can experience, friends, a similar problem with the Word of God. 
if we stare exclusively at certain Bible truths while excluding other truths in the Bible, our spiritual vision begins to blur out. Yeah, some people, for instance, tend to look at the love of God. They're all about the love of God. The only thing they talk about in the Bible is the love of God and probably passages that John wrote on the love of God. Others, they do the wrath of God. And they know the passages about the wrath of God and how the judgment is coming and, and, and they'll wax eloquent about the wrath of God but have little understanding of the love. Others like the passages on evangelism or church growth or the end of times or on the devil or on sin. But no matter what particular truth we are interested in the Bible, we need to be careful lest we lose our perspective. The Bible tells us that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And all of it is profitable for our spiritual development. Only as we see the big picture, how these many pieces fit together, will we avoid staring at some truths and become blind to the others. God's word was given for our good, and we are to obey. Not choose the parts that we like best, then live in our own way. We can't enjoy the harmony of the scriptures if we play just one note of truth. All scripture is God-breathed. Second, all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It's useful. It's profitable. It's for teaching what is right. It is for rebuking what is wrong. It is for correcting, helping us to get right again. And then it's for training in righteousness, how to stay right. It's useful, profitable, beneficial, helpful. It yields advantageous returns or results. And just as milk nourishes a baby in ways she does not understand, so God's word nourishes us in ways we don't understand. It is useful for teaching. The Bible is a teacher. It teaches us how to think. There, there is a Christian worldview or outlook on things in the world that gets developed as we read the Word of God. And that's a good thing. Romans 12, verse 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and prove what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. If you're not thinking correctly, you cannot live correctly. The Bible is profitable as a teacher. It is also profitable for rebuking. It helps us to realize what's wrong. It points out our errors. It convicts us of our sin. The Bible detects and exposes. The Bible convicts. And the idea it, to convict is to bring a person to the point of recognizing wrongdoing to convince them of their sin. The Bible is like a tennis linesman. Oh! Fault! Oh! And that's the ruling. There's not a lot of discussion about it. It's been ruled on. It's out. It's a fault. Okay. But the Bible is also like a baseball What do you want me to do, O oh Lord? I think you're leading me here. What does it have to say in your word? And as I consult your word, it tells me I'm 
safe out of this. That I'm living as you would have me to live. So it will rebuke you. Oh! But it will also say, safe. Now some people say that they don't read the Bible because they can't understand it. Frankly, I'm not so sure. Sometimes I wonder if they avoid reading the Bible because of how it convicts them. Mark Twain once said, most people are bothered by those passages in Scripture which they cannot understand. But as for me, I always noted that the passages in Scripture that troubled me the most are those which I do understand. Thirdly, it is useful for correction. Correction means to make straight again. In Greek literature, it was uh, used of uh, setting upright an object that had fallen down or of uh, helping a person back on his feet after stumbling. It also referred to repairing a broken arm, making it straight again. After the Bible rebukes us, it sets us straight again and helps us get back on our feet. And finally, the Bible is useful for training in righteousness. Once we're back on the road, here's where we go. This is the way. That's the Bible. And the purpose of all of this useful training, correction, training, righteousness, all that kind of stuff is that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thoroughly equipped. This verse teaches that the scripture is sufficient. It is all a man or a woman of God needs to be thoroughly equipped to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We need nothing more. The Bible is the Christian's constitution. It is our spiritual foundation. It is upon this book that in the 16th century, the Protestant reformers took their stand. A little more history for you from the 16th century. Officials and princes of both the church and the state met at something called the Imperial Diet, which was the council of the church and the state at that time. And they convened in a town called Worms, Germany, in the presence of uh, the Holy Roman Empire, Charles. And Martin Luther was summoned to this, to this council because they were going to uh, investigate him and they were going to quiz him and they were trying to catch him in his words so that they could convict him of false teaching. So his inquisitor, inquisitor demanded an answer of him. I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns. I love all that old English, that old talk stuff. Without horns. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? Now Luther had been pointing out some things in the Roman Catholic Church that were just simply wrong. And uh, this had the Catholic Church all stirred up. So they're, going, they're trying to get him to recant. Here's what he said in, in, in immortal words. Since then, your majesty and your lordship desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. What is that? Unless I am convinced by sacred scriptures or by evident reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is held captive by the word of God, I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And that, my friends, is the hope upon which you are built as a Protestant Christian church. 
Notice especially his words, my conscience is held captive by the word of God. For Luther, God's words were binding and had an authority far above the respected words of a pope or a council. But God's word was the sole and sufficient ultimate authority. We see this very reverence for God's word in Jesus. The scriptures made him wise. They equipped him for every good work. They were clear as he implied even, even, that even the evil one knew. Because when the devil quoted scriptures, Jesus did not turn to some other authority. Rather, Jesus says, it is also written. It is also written. Yeah, you, you, know, you know that Bible verse, Satan, as you try to trick me. But it is also written. Jesus knew the scriptures, and when the devil was at his door, he knew how to quote the scriptures back in ways that put things in proper perspective and got things right. Jesus teaches us to look into, not away from, the written word of God. And as we go to today's scripture passage, we see the same thing. Paul is teaching Timothy the sufficiency of the scriptures. You see, Paul reminds Timothy that the scriptures were able to make him wise unto salvation in Christ Jesus in verse 15. And then he teaches that the scriptures are useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness in 16. And because the scriptures have this character, they thoroughly equip the man and woman of God for every good work in verse 17. So Paul tells Timothy that he must preach this word. Even though the time is coming, he warns, when people will not want to hear it, but rather will want teachers to suit their own fancy. And they will instruct them in myths rather than the true word of God. And you can read that in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And the force and the clarity of the Apostle Paul's teaching here is striking. In spite of the rich oral tradition from which Timothy had come, he had been raised in the faith from infancy. His mom, his family, probably his church. But Paul says, preach the scriptures, Timothy, because those scriptures give you clearly all you need for wisdom and preparation to instruct the people of God in faith and in good works. The scriptures make us wise for salvation and equip us for everything we need for every good work required of, in this case, Timothy the preacher. It is the sufficiency and clarity of the Word of God that are taught in this one section of the Bible over and over and over again. As one commentator put it, Timothy, you have the scriptures for a master instead of me, Paul. From there, you can learn whatever you would know. This, friends, is sola scriptura. That's Latin. It means Scripture alone, the Bible is the sole and sufficient spiritual authority for the believer in Jesus Christ. Now we're going to take a look real quickly at five things sola scriptura is and five that it is not. We've got to nuance this a little bit. We've got to understand what place it plays in the midst of creeds and confessions and, and in the church of Jesus Christ when you have pastors who bring messages. So we're going to frame this. We're going to give some of the nuance here in, in five things it is and five things it isn't. First of all, the doctrine of sola scriptura simply stated is that the Bible alone is sufficient to function as the infallible rule of faith and life. Number two, all that one must believe to be a Christian is found in the Bible and in no other source. Now that's not to say 
that the necessary beliefs of faith can't be summarized in a shorter form like a creed and confession, but all of it eventually has to come, be rooted in the very word of God. Number three, that which is not found in the Bible is not binding upon the Christian. That which is not found in the Bible is not binding upon the Christian. Number four, Scripture reveals those things necessary for salvation. And number five, all traditions are subject to the higher authority of the Bible. Matthew 15, 1 through 9. The Westminster Confession of Faith, a key statement of faith fought for in the Reformation, states, The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, the author thereof. And therefore it is to be received because it's the word of God. Now here's what sola scriptura is not. First and foremost, sola scriptura is not a claim that the Bible contains all knowledge. Friends, your Bible's not a scientific textbook. It's not a manual on government procedure. It's not a catalog of uh, automobile engine parts. The Bible does not claim to give us every bit of knowledge that we could obtain. Number two, sola scriptura is not a claim that the Bible is the exhaustive catalog of all religious knowledge. The Bible itself asserts that it's not exhaustive in detail. John 21, verse 25. It is obvious that the Bible does not have to be exhaustive, though, to be sufficient as our source of divine truth. Number three, sola scriptura is not a denial of the authority of the church to teach God's truth. Number four, sola scriptura does not entail the rejection of every kind or form of church tradition. There are some traditions, creeds, and confessions that are God-honoring and are useful in teaching in the church. And number five, sola scriptura is not a denial of the role of the Holy Spirit in guiding and enlightening the church. So what was the big problem? back to the time of the Protestant Reformation that I think is a big problem in this generation. Dual authority. Simply dual authority. At the time of the Roman Catholic Church being the the major uh, denomination, if you will, in, in Europe, they had two sources of authority. There was the Bible, the, the, the Word of God, but there was also the Pope and the councils. And when the Pope ruled ex cathedra from his chair, when he made his official rulings, that was considered equal to the Word of God. And the Pope was considered to be equal to Peter when Peter was writing down the Holy Scriptures. So you had these two sources of authority. And guess what? They didn't fit nicely together. Sometimes things got a little crazy. And I'm going to go through a few things now where it got a little crazy. And you'll see that, oh, those things don't go together. Have you ever noticed with some of your Catholic friends that um, they have very different teachings on certain things than you? And you're wondering, where did that come from? That's not in the Bible. Well, it came from the councils or from the Pope. Here are a few of them. The word of God teaches that the wages of sin are death and that, and that all sin is purged as we're purified in Christ's death on the cross. The Roman Catholic tradition teaches that some sin can get purged later in a place called purgatory. 
Number two, the word of God teaches that Christ offered his sacrifice once and for all, while the Roman Catholic tradition claims that the priest participates in sacrificing Christ at the Mass. So in a little while, we're going to have the Lord's Supper. And if we were in the Catholic tradition, I wouldn't be looking at you as we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. I would be looking up front at some of the, the holy objects we have up front. And at a certain point in the liturgy, I would pick up the bell and I would ding. And that marks the time where, according to Catholic teaching, the bread and the juice literally becomes the body and blood of Christ in their teaching. We disagree. We disagree. Now, we're going to get fed at this meal today. But it is going to be the Holy Spirit who comes upon our hearts who is going to enrich us in this. It's not going to be because that's actually Christ's body and his blood and that the minister somehow did this and turned it into that. Okay? No. No, no, no. No. This remains bread and juice. But in the reverence of this moment and with the Holy Spirit's blessing, the Lord is going to work this into your hearts. Jesus died for me. Thanks be to God, I want to serve him again. Here's another example. The word of God teaches that all have sinned except for Jesus. You can read about that in Romans 3 or Hebrews 4. But the Roman Catholic tradition declares that Mary was sinless. The word of God teaches that all Christians are saints and priests. But the Roman Catholic tradition teaches that saints and priests are special offices within the Christian community dealt out by church leadership. And I, I could go on with this stuff, but I just want you to see that if you have dual sources of authority, you end up with contradiction and, and, and messes. And really, my aim today is not really at the Catholic Church. I'm aiming at us. Because we do this too in our generation. We, Protestant believers, like to think that we're kind of on our own little throne. And that the Bible is good. Yeah, I like the Bible. But certain things need to be taken out of the Bible. Or certain things weren't well put and we just need to ignore that one. Or we got to get with the times and we should okay this even though the Bible says that. And so we too operate with dual sources of authority rather than trusting the holy word of God. Uh, here's an example of that. I had a conversation with a church member who had dual authorities playing out in her life. She would say that she was a Christian and she had her Bible, but she had a favorite sin. And she didn't want to give up that sin. And it was a sin that on the surface appeared to be a lot of fun. And it was a sin that had big consequences in her life. She liked to minimize it and call it a minor sin. And she suggested that everyone was doing it, which meant that God was unrealistic and expecting his people to obey on that one. See, I want you to see how her authority in our discussion was the Bible and some other authority, in this case, kind of her logic or her intuition on how things ought to go. And so she kind of got rid of what she didn't like in the Bible and kept what she did like. So the Bible was one of her authorities. Her other authority was her logic or her intuition. 
Friends, I am convinced in the Church of Jesus Christ in North America today that the dual authorities are in the evangelical Christian world, our world, is the Bible and feeling it. And it's only real if I'm feeling it. So, so then church becomes, I got to feel it. So I got to go to the place that most jacks me up because I got to feel it. And as long as I feel it, it's real. And they have the word of God, and I have my feelings, and I love it. It feels good. What happens when you quit feeling it? You just go to the next church down the road and try to feel it there? Or is it true just because God says so, even when I'm not feeling it? And quite frankly, in your Christian life, there are come times when you're not feeling it. When there's a hard death. There's going to be moments you will not feel it. When, um, when you're in a drought in your spiritual life, there's going to be moments when you're not feeling it. And does this then cease to be true when you're not feeling it? But that is the logic of North American Christians and Christian evangelical circles that if I'm not feeling it, it ain't real. So I got to both have the Bible and I got to feel it. If I'm not feeling it, it ain't real. No, it's real all the time. It's the sole and sufficient authority for the believer. Now, I'm an experiential guy. I love it when I'm feeling it in my Christian faith. I love it. Those are great moments. And uh, that's why I was so good to worship with you this morning. I could feel it. But even if I hadn't felt it this morning, it was still true. It was based on the word of God and the authority of God and upon God's word. So we have the same issue today. The Bible and whatever other authority, our logic or our feelings or our intuitions, go back to the Bible alone. It was 1949, and there was a, a young man. Oh, yeah, i got to get into my 27 minutes here. Okay, I'm, I'm closing. Kyle, I'm closing. All right. In 1949, there was a, a young man who was torn in his heart about whether the Bible was the sole and sufficient authority for, for his spiritual life. And his turning point came when he went on a re retreat with some others at a Christian conference center in California, and he was deeply troubled over the battle raging in his soul. Is the Bible the word of God or is it not? Can I believe it or not? And at some point, he simply knelt before his God and said, Oh God, I do not understand it all, but I am willing to believe it and willing to obey it. The man later wrote that during the Los Angeles crusade, he discovered the secret that changed his ministry. He stopped trying to prove that the Bible was true. He had settled that in his own mind and in his own heart that it was. And this faith then was conveyed to his audience. The Bible is the sole and sufficient authority for the believer. But over and over again, he found himself saying in that crusade, the Bible says... And he felt as though it was that he was merely a voice through which the Holy Spirit was speaking. And he found that the Bible became a flame in his hands. And that that flame melted away unbelief in the hearts of people and moved them to decide for Christ. And the word became like a hammer, breaking up stony hearts and shaping them into the likeness of God. And he found he did not have to rely upon cleverness 
oratory, psychological manipulation, or apt illustrations or striking quotations, he began to rely more and more upon the Bible itself. And God blessed. And that man was Billy Graham. And he discovered the power of the Word of God. And he brought it to folks who needed it. Indeed, the Bible is the sole and sufficient authority for the Christian. It is the sword of the Lord, his holy word. And do not add or subtract to it. Revelation 22, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plague described in the scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. This is your sole and sufficient authority for your spiritual life. So, in three words, read the book. Read the book. Lord, in a generation that seems to be wandering and wondering. You have given us the sole and sufficient spiritual authority for our lives in the word of God. We give you the honor and the praise and the thanks, and we ask that by your spirit, through this message and now through the supper of which we'll take, that if there are any ways that we are operating with dual authority in our lives, that you would correct us here this morning, that you would rebuke us, and you would call us to your authority for us, so we could live fully and totally as your people. That, that lamp on the hill shining for all to see in this confused generation. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's listen to these words about this awesome gift of the word. statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward.
from the Holy Word of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We'll first distribute the bread, and if you would hold on to it, and we will partake together, and then we will do the same with the Jews. Elders, would you please come forward to serve? You are a believer in Jesus Christ, if he has died for your sins, if you've taken a public stand for him um, in, in the church uh, that you are a part of, uh, we welcome you to participate in this as well.
body of the Lord Jesus Christ was broken for a complete remission of our sins. And this cup is the new covenant in his blood. And we do this too. And a wonderful remembrance of him and in need of his sustenance and his building up.
shed and the blood of Christ was shed for you. It was shed for you again. Me too. And thanks be to God. The world drinks to forget. We Christians drink to remember. Let's stand together. give you briefly some instructions for the lunch. For those who RSVP'd for the turkey dinner, they will start serving in the cafe at 11, but they're going to continue serving until Sunday school has been dismissed. And let's just take a moment to pray over the meal that many of us are going to share together. Lord our God, we thank you for this food that we're about to share. Thank you for the people who prepared it. We pray that you would bless the conversation around these tables, God. We pray that new connections would be made that relationships would be strengthened, Lord. Grow and bless your church here in Roselawn, Lord, may, and may we stand upon the authority of your word alone. In Jesus' name, amen. And now as you go, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father.